If you would, take your Bible tonight, look with me to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. I think you and I understand that much of, what, much of how we look at it is simply a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. That was shown to me recently in something that I had read. I read it line by line. And let me read it to you line by line. And then share a little twist on this thing. You may have seen it too. Today was the absolute worst day. And don't try to convince me that there's something good in every day. Because when you take a closer look, the world is a pretty evil place. Even if some goodness does shine through once in a while, satisfaction and happiness don't last. And it's not true that it's all in the mind and heart because true happiness cannot be obtained. Only if, if one's surroundings are good. It's not true that good exists. I'm sure you can agree with that. The reality creates my attitude. It's all beyond my control. And you'll never in a million years hear me say that today was a good day. Have you seen that? Then at the bottom it says, now read from the bottom to the top. Okay. Today was a good day. And you'll never in a million years hear me say that it's all beyond my control, my attitude. My attitude creates the reality. I'm sure you can agree that it's not true that good exists, only if one's surroundings are good. True happiness can be obtained because it's all in the mind and heart, and it's not true that satisfaction and happiness don't last. Some goodness does shine through once in a while, even if the world is a pretty evil place, because when you take a closer look, there's something good in every day. And don't try to convince me that today was the absolute worst day of my life. It's all a matter of perspective. Perhaps you've seen that drawing of the... Of the um, the elderly lady, I was going to say old lady, but that's not polite, but it's an, it's an elderly lady, and you look at one, look at it immediately, and it's a picture of an older lady, but there is hidden also in there a picture of a younger lady. And it's interesting, when you get people together, the people who see the older lady can't see the younger lady in it, and they'll insist that she's not in there. And the people who see the younger lady insist that the older lady doesn't exist. It's all a matter of perspective. This is why it's vitally important that we let the Bible shape our perspective. And we look at things from God's perspective. We hear a lot of times that, that, you know, why is there so much evil in the world? If God is good, why doesn't he stop the evil? If he's, if he's powerful, why doesn't he stop it? Apparently he's not good and he's not powerful. Uh, because there is evil and people are suffering and why doesn't God do something about it? Of course, from a biblical perspective, this by no means exhausts the answer to that issue, but you and I understand that God has dealt with the evil called sin. He dealt with it on Calvary. He dealt with it on the cross. Man's greatest need was to be reconciled to the God he had offended and God provided that through, through the atonement, through the Lord Jesus Christ. But why do we suffer? You and I understand that when God created all things, He created them good. There was no suffering. There was no dying. There were no tears shed. When God made everything, He made it good. And God didn't mess it up. Man messed it up. Man chose to disobey God. Adam chose to disobey God. When, and one day, all will return back to that goodness. One day, God will rule and reign, and all will be paradise. 
But in the meantime, yes, there is suffering. Yes, there, there is evil in the world. And there, part of the reason for that is because God has given man a free will. Sometimes people suffer not through their own doing, but because of the decisions of others. God has given people a free will. And sometimes, look, a, a child does not choose to grow up in the home of an addict. A, a child does not choose to, to grow up in the home of, of someone that is, that is in sin's bondage, so to speak. And so sometimes we suffer because of the decisions of others. A person does not choose to have their family impacted by the actions of a drunk driver. So sometimes we suffer because of the decisions, the foolish decisions others make. Sometimes we suffer because of our own foolish decisions. God has put a principle in play, hasn't he? Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And sometimes we reap the results of our own foolish choices and our own poor decisions. Sometimes we suffer because of sin. Maybe not a sin that we committed, but, we, but because the principle of sin is in the world and the world is under God's curse because of sin, we sometimes suffer because of that. Our bodies are perishing. They're corrupting. They're growing older. We live in a cursed world. And sometimes we suffer because of that. So sometimes we suffer because of the decisions other people make. We suffer because of the decisions we make. Sometimes we suffer because we're just in a fallen world, in, in perishing bodies. Sometimes we suffer because of a conversation that's taken place at the throne of God. Exhibit A, Job. Job didn't suffer because of, of uh, his sin. He didn't suffer because of somebody else's sin. He suffered because God was putting on display his faithfulness before the accuser. Job was not privy to that conversation. And so sometimes you and I move through suffering because our genuineness is being tested. Sometimes we suffer and we don't know why. We don't know why, but we do know this, that when we look at things from a biblical perspective, biblical perspective, when we understand who God is and when we're close to him, we can move through suffering with a holy nobility for God's glory. And he does give grace and strength. He does give grace and strength during the suffering. You and I know many folks who have gone through very dark times with their health, with their finances, with their family. They've gone through some very dark times, and yet they have moved through those times with a nobility. Sometimes when we suffer, we think God is getting us back. We think, well, the Lord's paying me back for that thing I did years ago. Now, you and I understand that sin can bring suffering, but we also understand that Jesus paid the price for our sin in full on the cross. You and I will not be punished for our sin. Jesus has taken that punishment in full. Now, punishment always looks back. Punishment always looks back on past action, and a past action always, always requires a penalty. A past evil action always requires a penalty to be met. And so... Jesus took the penalty for our sin on the cross. 
And that, that compels us to love him and to, and to live a holy life as he which hath called us is holy. So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, all manner of behavior. And so, so that, that price that he paid for us to purchase us, to reconcile us to God, compels us to strive to be holy with his grace and enablement. It stirs our hearts to stay faithful to him. But sin's penalty has been paid in full. But there is this thing that comes into our lives called chastening. And Hebrews 12 reminds us that if any be without chastening, then they're not sons. If a person is not chastened, then he is not a son of God because God chastens all of his children. But keep in mind, chastening is not punishment. See, punishment has an eye toward the past. Punishment has an eye toward the past. So, so uh, being punished for something has an eye to the past, toward the past. It's payment for something that was done in the past. Jesus took the payment for our sin. But chastening has an eye on the future. Think of that. It has an eye on the future. Chastening is something that God does to allow us to bear more fruit, to be more like him, to uh, have, have to understand more of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Chastening has a variety of, of uh, reasons. And again, it's all a matter of perspective. So we're at Luke chapter, chapter 22. And in Luke's Gospel chapter 22, we're going to find one of the reasons why God allows chastening. You ever felt like your life is shaken up? Ever feel like the carpet's been pulled out from under you? And we might say, what's the Lord doing? What's going on? What did I do? Well, sometimes chastening is for correction, not for punishment, but for correction, but always with the idea of more fruitfulness in the future, more Christ-likeness in the future. So the Lord's going to tell Peter that he's about to be shaken. Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, here's what the Bible says. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold. He says Simon's name twice. I like what pastor says. When God says something once, we ought to listen, of course. Well, when the Lord speaks, Peter ought to listen. But then he calls Peter by name, Simon. Ooh, that would be arresting. And then he calls him a second time, a sense of urgency. Pay attention to this. And then he says, behold, don't let this slip by, Simon. Don't let it pass you by. And what does Simon do? He lets it pass him by. Notice what Jesus says. Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, you know that in our Bibles here, there's a change in the pronouns. There's a change in the pronouns. You could see that. And as you look at that, we wonder what's, what's going on here. Many of you may be familiar with this already. But when Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you. He uses the second person plural, you. He's referring to a group, the apostles. He says, nevertheless, I have prayed for thee. That's an individual. Anytime in our Bibles we see you, your, ye, you all, that's always a group. But when you see thee, thou, thine, that's always an individual. And so Jesus says, Satan has desired 
to have you that he may sift you as wheat, referring to the apostles. But I have prayed for thee, Simon, and when you are converted, you need to, as he says here, when you're converted, strengthen thy brethren. What does Peter say? Does he, does he simply listen in humility? He, in so many words, says, oh, no, Lord, you're wrong. Look at what he says in verse 33. He saith unto him, he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. There's something about Peter that Peter just is not understanding. And the Lord is trying to rid Peter of this thing that he needs to understand. It says here in verse 34, and he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt deny, thou shalt, thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. I'm going to go with you even unto death and into prison. I'm, I'm with you. I'm ready to go anywhere. And the Lord says, Peter, when the cock crows, you will have denied that you know me three times. So what is it that Peter needs to have shaken off of him? Well, it's his pride, his arrogance, his ego. He needed to be brought to the end of himself. Satan hath desired to have you, Jesus says about the apostles, that the, 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 to sift them, to sift them like wheat. What is that process like? Well, I remember as a child seeing some of the flannel graph pictures uh, uh, in Sunday school. And uh, I remember seeing that there would be a lady with a, like a, an apron and she would have the grain in her apron and she'd be tossing it into the air and the gentle breeze would come along and as that wheat would bounce on that apron and bounce into the air, the chaff on the outside, the husk on the outside would come loose from the wheat and the wind would gently blow the chaff away. I've also seen where it was a basket, a large round basket with a shallow brim and they put wheat on that and they would bounce it and bounce it and bounce it so that the husk would get jarred away from the kernel and the wind would blow the chaff away, blow the husk away, because the husk was not nutritious. It was superfluous. It was of no value. And then you would have the grain left. And so Peter had this thing called an ego, an arrogance, that needed to be jarred away from him. Sometimes God allows us to be chastened. Sometimes God allows us to be shaken to remove that which is dead. To remove that which is not helpful, to remove that which is superfluous. Sometimes to remove that which is good so that there could remain the best. Sometimes God allows that to happen to us. The whole goal is to be conformed to Christ, to be conformed to His Son. So sometimes God allows the rug to be pulled out from under us, not because He's mad at us, not because he's angry at us, not because he's out to get us. But he is determined that we'll be conformed to the image of his son. And so sometimes there's a sifting that goes on to remove that which is dead. In another text over in the Gospel of Luke, or it's still in the Gospel, Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, another chapter here in Luke, Luke chapter 6. This will be a familiar text to you, Luke chapter 6. 
And in this context, the context here, by the way, uh, there, are a, there are a bunch of reasons as to why God would allow us to be shaken or chastened. A bunch of reasons. We're not going to get through all of them tonight, and this isn't intended to be exhaustive, but maybe just to be a help. Just to understand, God does have a plan. It's all a matter of perspective, man. It's all a matter of perspective. God does have a plan. And uh, he's determined that his plan would be fulfilled. And sometimes he allows us to go through stuff that'll jostle us to bring us to the end of ourselves, to show us we've got to depend on him, to remind us he is our life. And in Luke chapter 6, you have a, a vast multitude of people. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus calls out 12 of the disciples to be his apostles. So you have apostles, and just beyond that, you have disciples, followers of Jesus, but not sent out ones. Only 12 were the sent out ones. The rest were still locked on, apprentices of Jesus as disciples. And then beyond that, you have a great multitude, a great multitude of people. So you have some people that are merely attending where Jesus is, and that's a great place to begin, isn't it? It's a great place to begin. Not always a good place to stay. Eventually, you've got to get attached. And so the disciples, they're attached. They're attached. They're not just attending. They're attached. They're following him. They're locked on. And beyond that, there are those that are active. And in the local church, same thing. It's always, it's always a delight when people attend. It's always a delight. We praise the Lord for that. But somewhere along the line, God's desire is that we move from being an attender to being attached. And it's good to be attached. It's good to be a part of that local body of believers. Uh, but after a while, that person that's attached needs to become active in some way. And so this is what we find in Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, you get the impression that as Jesus moves through the crowd, because people are there for what Jesus can do for them, very consumeristic. They're there <coughs> attending for what Jesus can do for them. And so as he moves through the crowd, they cry out, Lord, Lord. They cry out his name twice, his title twice. Not merely a title, though, but, but a name, a title that would suggest a particular type of relationship. Lord, it's not simply a title like sir. It is a title that implies that there is some sort of a relationship, that he is our Lord, that he is our sovereign, that he is our king. Somebody wisely said, if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, then he's merely your mascot. And that's what we find here. People who were coming in this crowd just for what Jesus could do for them. And as he would pass through, and, and, and look, they were facing some very weighty things. They brought people who were sick. They brought people that needed to be healed, people that needed to be cleansed, people that, 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 that uh, needed their situation to be improved. And so there was that desire to see their family members, their children, their mom, their dad, their aunts, uncles, their friends, to see them made whole. But when they cry out, Lord, Lord, it's with the idea that, that implies there's some kind of a close relationship. And then Jesus calls them out in verse 46. Luke 6, 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And what Jesus does here is he gives a threefold, and we're not going to uh, go through this and, and labor the point, belabor the point. But he gives a threefold requirement as to what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in this text. And he gives a diagnostic test. Three 
evidence. It's three components as to what it looks like to follow Jesus and then a diagnostic test. And you'll notice what he says here in verse 47. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. What does discipleship look like to Jesus? What does it look like when he's the Lord of my life? Here's what it looks like. I come to him. I keep coming to him. I keep hearing him. And I keep doing what he says. And then there's this diagnostic test. He says here in verse uh, 47, you know, I will show unto you whom he is like. Verse 48, he is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock and could not shake it. See, the person who is following Christ, the person uh, over whom Jesus is truly Lord, keeps coming to Jesus because he is our strength. He's our life. We, We keep coming to him. We keep coming to him. We came to him once for salvation, to be saved from damnation. Well, we keep coming to him, coming to him, coming to be saved from damage in the, in, in the life that we live. And so we come to him. He is our life. He's not a part of it. He's not, he's not at, even at the center of it. He is our life. He's supposed to be our life. That's what Paul said, right? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So the one who keeps coming to Christ, hearing what Christ says and doing what he says and doing what he says, the diagnostic test is that when a storm comes, when the floods come, they will not be shaken. Sometimes God allows us to be shaken. Sometimes God allows us to be chastened in order to reveal the foundation we've been building on. Sometimes he he allows us to be shaken to reveal or expose the foundation that we've been building on. Because notice the next verse. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth. That is upon the ground, the sand, the dirt. The Bible says against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. It wasn't a slow erosion process. It immediately fell. It did not stand at all. And it it fell quickly and great was a fall of it. It was a fall that was renowned. It was a fall that was thorough. And it's not because God's out to get us, but we need a reality check sometimes. Because we can put on the air of one who's coming to Jesus and hearing what he says and doing what he says, and then, and then live our own life the rest of the week. What's the test? The test is how we respond to trials. And again, it's not that God's out to get us, because he's not, he loves us. He that spared not his own son, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? But sometimes God loves us so much, he'll let us have a reality check. Now, let me just say this, that if there comes a time when the flood beats across our life and we we are decimated, you can always come back. You can always rebuild. You can always use that as a turning point that says, I'm going to keep coming to him, hearing what he says and doing what he says. Failure is not fatal. It's not final. The just man falls seven times because he keeps getting back up. So sometimes the Lord allows us to be shaken in order to get rid of the dead stuff in our lives. Isn't that what happens every fall? 
The, the wind blows, you know, that one day in fall when that we have one day of fall and the leaves drop from the trees and they blow in the neighbor's yard and then all of my neighbor's leaves blow into my yard. What's that going, what's going on? There's a shaking and the dead leaves are getting rid of, gotten rid of. Sometimes God allows us to be shaken to expose the foundation that we've been building on. Sometimes the Lord allows us to be shaken to wake us up. Uh, two instances in the book of Joel in the first chapter, Joel, as God directs him, warns, warns Israel of an, uh, of an coming infestation of insects that's going to decimate their crops. And as a part of the warning, he says, awaken ye drunkards. Sometimes God allows us to be shaken because we've fallen asleep and we need to be stirred back to wakefulness. We become numb, intoxicated with the things of the world and we need to be brought back to watchfulness. You know, in the middle of the night sometimes, a guy will get shaken. His wife will shake him, wake him up out of slumber and she'll say, I heard a noise. And what does he do? He says, well, you heard it. You go check it out. I'll pray for you. So, so we know what it is to be sleeping and then to be stirred out of that sleep. And sometimes the Lord allows us to be shaken that we might be awakened. Three things so far. Sometimes there's that chastening to remove that which is dead. Sometimes there's the chastening to expose the foundation that our lives are built on. Are we coming to Jesus, hearing what he says and doing what he says? Sometimes there's the shaking or the chastening to awaken us, to stir us, to rouse us back to wakefulness, watchfulness. Sometimes there's the shaking in order to settle. And, and Paul, or to me, Peter talks about this. He talks about it over in, um, here we are. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. You'll be familiar with these verses. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 10 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, verse 10 says, catch this, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Sometimes the Lord allows chastening to settle things. I'm reminded also of that text in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 6, 38, where the Bible says, Give, and it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom, for with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. That's Luke 6, 38. Well, you get that picture. Here's, here's again a lady with that apron 
and uh, she's, she's uh, got it filled with flour, filled with wheat, I should say, filled with wheat. And the Bible says when you give, God blesses and we receive and, and, and we receive. And it's as though we've been given, pressed down, sort of like a Mongolian barbecue. Ever been to one of those? Huh? Pressed down, shaken together, running over. God is so good. It's the Tinker Toy Principle. Anybody, anybody remember Tinker Toys? Of course you do. Anybody have no idea what Tinker Toys are? Okay, they're like old school Legos. That's a stretch. They were little dowels, weren't they? Multicolored, like you had red dowels, you had blue dowels, you had green dowels. They're very skinny. They had a little slot on the end so that they could, they could uh, expand. And they, and they had these little wheels. They looked like wooden Oreo cookies, right? And on the edge of these were holes. And you would take the dowels, you would stick them in the wheels, and you would build stuff. You would tinker with these toys. And they always came in a tube, in a, in a cardboard tube. And I remember one day my dad was walking by the room. I was about five years old. He said, son. I think I said, yes, father. He said, clean up your tinker toys. Yes, father. And so I, I ran into a problem. They weren't fitting in the tube. My father walked by and said, I thought I told you to clean up the tinker toys. Well, father, they're not fitting in the tube. And so he came over and did something magical. He shook it. And the tinker toys settled. He said, you try it. Yes, father. So I took tinker toys, put it in there to the top, shook it. They settled down. I thought that was so cool. I shook it. I shook it and they settled. In fact, I got so good at that. At the end, not only did I fit all the tinker toys in that tube, I fit my sister and a puppy. Not really, but anyway, it was a small puppy. Sometimes the Lord does that. You say, Lord, what are you doing? Well, I'm getting you ready. I'm settling things so that you can have more ministry. I'm getting things ready to build upon. I'm, building a, I'm shaking things together so that the foundation is compacted because I'm going to do more in your life. We think he's out to get us. We think, we think this is terrible. What have I done? It may be that you have only been faithful. And God sees that you can produce more. Sometimes there's a chastening that's related to pruning so that we can bear more fruit. Sometimes there's a chastening related to reaping fruit. Sometimes I was in, a, you know, we go through Riverside every once in a while and at night you could smell the orange blossoms a lot of times. Absolutely beautiful. And I would see trees loaded with oranges, and I wonder, how do they get those oranges off of there? I don't see any ladders. I don't see any bins or anything. And then I saw a YouTube video. You probably saw it, too. A machine with a fork out the front. And you pull this machine up, and, and the fork goes on either side of the tree trunk and clamps down on the tree trunk. And then an inverted umbrella swings out and goes underneath, underneath the tree. And then that machine shakes the daylights out of that tree. And if it's been dusty or dry, you see the plume of dust and the oranges that are ripe, they fall off of the tree into that little umbrella thing where they're channeled into a compartment. That is so cool. Sometimes the Lord may do that in our lives in order for fruit to be reaped. There are a lot of reasons why God may chasten us. It's all a matter of perspective. You'll have to take this by faith, but in high school I played basketball. <laughs> 
So here's the deal. I went to a small Christian school when I was my, in my junior year of high school. Went to public school all the way through, but went to a small Christian school in my junior year of high school. I did not know Christian schools existed. And when I found out, I thought, man, they have been holding out on me. And I said, Dad, can, can I go to the Christian school? Because I could not get enough. I could not get enough of the Bible. And I thought, man, I'm here Sunday and Wednesday. You mean I could be here Monday through Friday too? And so my dad said, well, if the Lord provides, you can go. And God provided. And I don't know who it was, but there, were some, there was a person or some people who made it possible for my sisters and I to go to a Christian school. And I soon found out that not everybody at a Christian school was passionate about the things of Christ. But all that aside, so I became part of the basketball team, but it was a small school. Everybody played basketball, you know. I mean, they'd go to the first grade. Yeah, it looks like a tall first grader. Feel like playing basketball? Wasn't quite that bad, but I was on the JV team. And I remember our, our coach, he would have us do these things called progressions. I mentioned this recently, and somebody said, our coach called them suicides. And the idea is you stand on the, on the baseline of the, of the basketball court, you touch the ground there, he says, or he blows the whistle, he blows the whistle, and you launch, and you run as fast as you can to the bottom of the free throw circle, touch the ground, go back to the baseline. And then to the free throw line, touch the ground, go back to the baseline, touch the ground, to the top of the free throw line, back to the baseline, to the, to the, to the uh, center court line, the, touch the ground, all the way. I mean, you would just do that. You would, you would feel like you were going to die. And we'd say, Coach, what did we do? Why are you punishing us? What is this about? He said, I'm not punishing you. You didn't do anything wrong. He just said, I want you to play all four quarters. I don't want you to quit. I want you to have endurance. He wasn't punishing us. He was conditioning us. And sometimes that's what the Lord does in our lives. That's part of the strengthening that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 5. Sometimes the Lord allows us to go through things so that we'll be conditioned and strengthened. Well, there's a lot more, I'm sure, but that's where we'll stop tonight. We want to take some time to pray. But I hope there's something there that'll be a help. I don't know why the Lord had me bring this tonight. I don't know why he had me bring those particular points. There are others. Why he had us bring those out but leave others off. The Lord knows. But it may be that tonight you're here because there was something there that God knew you needed. We all need them. We all need those points. Or maybe tonight somebody's watching as well or watching in an archive form. Maybe they have a clearer picture now as to why God may be letting them go through what it is that they're going through.